Hey y'all, this is Philip from the Redefining Conservation team. Before we get to the show, I've got two quick requests. As we're coming to the end of our first season, we'd love to hear from you. If you're on Apple Podcasts, you can rate our show and drop us a line in the review. Otherwise, feel free to get in touch with us at the link in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. Here's the show. Hey folks, quick note before we get into the episode. We had some technical difficulties recording this episode, so if it seems like the conversation ends suddenly, that's why. We still covered some great topics, and we're hoping to do a follow-up episode with this week's guest next year. With that out of the way, here's the show. Welcome to Redefining Conservation, the Sierra Club Maine podcast. Dive into our mission to preserve 30% of Maine's land and water by 2030, its impact on Maine, and the innovative strategies behind it. Find us on Buzzsprout or sierraclubmaine.org. Tune in to stay informed, inspired, and engaged as we redefine conservation in Maine. I'm your host, Matt Cannon, and in today's episode, we are discussing biodiversity, renewable energy, siting, conservation, and more as we explore the main 30 by 30 campaign and what it looks like. Today, our guest is Sally Stockwell of Maine Audubon. We're honored to have you today in the studio. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me here. Thanks for being here. For our listeners, Sally is Director of Conservation for Maine Audubon. She's a wildlife ecologist with experience in conservation of non-game, rare, and endangered species in freshwater wetlands, coastal beaches and marshes, and northern forests. She has additional experience as an interpretive naturalist, environmental education instructor, and outdoor adventure leader. She holds a PhD in wildlife ecology and a Master's of Science in Wildlife Management from the University of Maine. Sally's worked with a variety of partners and stakeholders on projects and programs to conserve Maine's woods, waters, and wildlife for over 40 years and has been spearheading the Forestry for Maine Birds program to manage woodlands with birds in mind since 2013. Um, So as I'm sure you're aware, there's a global and national and state initiative for kind of preserving 30% of lands and waters by 2030 as a goal, it's kind of part of a broader goal to preserve more. And with this podcast series, we're trying to figure out what that looks like here in Maine. So previous episodes, we've covered uh, land access, forestry management, and water rights. Today, we'll dive a little bit more into biodiversity, renewable energy siting, and whatever else you think is relevant. So to start off, Sally, um, can you tell us more about your work at Maine Audubon? and how you got to where you are today. Sure. Well, I have been working for a long time on a wide variety of conservation issues that are related to protecting wildlife and wildlife habitat all across the state of Maine. So I've had my fingers in vernal pool conservation, in uh, wetland protection, in forestry practices and forest uh, land conservation, and endangered species management and conservation, particularly for our coastal birds like piping plovers and least terns. And um, also been doing a lot of work in reconnecting streams, reconnecting the Penobscot River. I was involved in the Penobscot River Restoration Project and also in uh, smaller streams so that we've got room for fish and other aquatic animals to move back and forth. And we was involved earlier in a effort to try to identify more heritage fish waters. So I, I've i worked with amphibians, reptiles, fish, insects, uh, small mammals, birds, 
lots, lots of different critters and lots of different places. So I guess just to frame the conversation, maybe you could help us understand biodiversity in its broadest sense and then um, how you approach thinking about it when conserving lands and or advocating here in Maine. Okay, well, let me start first by just talking about what a special place Maine is for our wildlife and habitat. If you go from the southern tip of Maine to the northern tip of Maine, from the coast of Maine to the mountains of Maine, you know that we have a lot of physical biogeographical diversity in the state. But what you might not know is that we there's only three degrees of latitude from the southern border to the northern border here in Maine, but that corresponds with about 20 degrees of latitude of change in Europe from central wow. France up to the northern tip of Scandinavia. So we packed a lot of diversity in a relatively small area. And um, so we, we have something really special here in Maine. And we have critters that only occur in the very southern part of Maine because they're actually at the northern edge of their range. So things like Blanding's turtles, Carolina wrens that are now coming into the state. And then at the northern border, we've got species that are sort of at the southern edge of their range, things like Canada lynx or boreal chickadees. So, um, and all of those different plants, animals, communities are, uh, you know, we have a lot, a lot of variety within a relatively small s space. And part of the challenge for the 30 by 30 campaign is to figure out how do we protect all of that? How do we conserve all of that? And there's there's a lot of different ways to go about doing that. Yeah. Um, and that will be the work of all of us probably for quite some time. Um, as we do try to work towards that shared goal, I don't know if you're familiar with the Woodlands and Wildlands vision regionally. Yes, very familiar with that. Um, and so we've we're starting to explore that a little bit with some people as it's the only regional vision I've seen kind of based on um, science and cooperation among the states. It generally calls for 65% of woodlands to be conserved, including actively managed land, 11% wildlands conserved, which really wouldn't be any management, but still have public trail access. And that's kind of one idea for the vision of Maine. How do you think about either that regional vision uh, in general or specifically around biodiversity. I know we have ecological reserve system here as one portion of it. We have actively managed lands for, and for folks who want to learn more about forest management practices, you can listen to our previous episode on that. Um, but yeah, how do we start thinking about this regionally and in Maine? Well, I am a big um, supporter of the Wildlands and Woodlands initiative. I, um, I think that we have a tremendous opportunity and also kind of a responsibility to try to try to meet those goals. We're we're on the road to trying to to address those. A big important piece of that is, as you mentioned, Matt, a, having a combination of managed lands and unmanaged lands or reserves. So the state of Maine actually has a really great network of ecological reserves, many of which are on state natural lands and then some of which are on private conservation lands 
And one of the things that I would love to see is a little bit more of those ecological reserve areas or wildlands protected in the, in the near future. Those we know from research that's been done hold a higher degree of diversity, biodiversity, than our managed lands overall. They, they're, um, some wilderness areas, some studies have shown that wilderness areas can contain as much as double the biodiversity that you find on managed lands. Wow. And so we, we have, uh, those are, those are also places where we're likely to see more older forests, at least if not now, over time. And we know that our older forests definitely have more biodiversity, even just among the insect life, the insect, the soils, all the, the decomposers that are there, the lichens that are on the trees. You got more structural diversity in those older forests. Then you've got more places for birds and other wildlife to find places to nest, to hide from predators, to find the food they need. And um, so, so I'm really excited about the opportunity and to, to do more of that. Yeah, you bring up how important old growth is in particular. I know there's not really much left. No. Um, how how do you think about increasing the amount of old growth in Maine and or the region? I think there's two ways to go about doing that. One is we got to protect what we still have. There's just not much of it. I, I Maybe, well, there's probably less than 1% of the, depends how you define old growth, but true old growth that's never been harvested we only have about 10,000 acres of that in the whole state wow. of 17 million acres um, of forest land. So it's pretty limited. And then um, maybe 2 to 4% of our forest land is currently in sort of older forest stands. And so, what, you know, protecting what we still have is really important in my view. And then finding ways to set aside either within managed lands or in ecological reserves, finding places where we can let the forest grow on its own so it becomes older forest again in the future. I yeah. think it's really important. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you don't do any harvesting in the future, but we need to give these forests time to redevelop some of that structural complexity to turn into big old trees that are good for timber in addition to good for wildlife over time. But, you know, it takes time. Yeah. Those are also places that store a lot of carbon, which is really important to counter the impacts from climate change. Moving to kind of a intersectional question, as we have been trying to do on this podcast, um, there's emerging trends from Audubon, Sierra Club, other folks to kind of think about what goes beyond traditional conservation. Um, there's land use, competing interests moving forward. Renewable energy development can be one tension. How do you see the roles of environmental organizations changing as climate change increasingly becomes a central concern across all the issues that we monitor and advocate for? You know, Maine Audubon has never been a land-holding organization, so we don't directly protect land. We support other organizations that do that, including the state and the feds and the and, and local land trusts. Uh, but it's going to take more than just 
protecting land to protect biodiversity and to counter our the impacts from climate change. So there's so many things that we need to do. And one of them is to continue to protect these undeveloped landscapes into the future so that they can be the repositories of our, our biodiversity and they can hold the seeds for the future landscape, whatever that might look like. I think we, we also really need to pay attention to not just how, whether or not the land is protected from development, but how we manage those lands, how we take care of those lands. It's not really necessarily managed, but you know, how, how many trails are we putting through these areas? How, what's happening? I was just at a meeting last night with my local town forestry committee, and we were talking about how the spread of invasives is just out of control. And in many ways, that's coming along the trails where people are walking, riding their bikes, bringing their dogs. It's spreading. We're, you know, we are responsible for spreading those invasives. Once you get these um, masses of invasive species that are taking over the, the native species, you got all kinds of problems, even with just the nat natural seeds being able to come up through the forest floor. Um, so we need to really think about how we're, we're taking care of these lands. And as I mentioned earlier, one of the things that we've been trying to do at Maine Audubon for the last 10 plus years, and we work with a lot of partners on this, is working with landowners, working with loggers, working with um, foresters to think about how are we managing our forests and how can we do it? How can we still get the wood products, the timber off of these lands, but also provide better habitat for mm. fish, wildlife, birds, all kinds of species? And that, that requires a little bit different approach than sort of the traditional commercial approach. Uh, and then a third area, I think, that where we can really make a big difference is in our own communities, in our own backyards. Actually, I would say third and fourth area. One, one is to get involved at the local level, both with either with your local land trust or with your conservation commission or community, local community, um, town activities where you're getting involved in putting together an open space plan or your comprehensive plan and thinking about where should development go? Where should lands be maybe not developed? Uh, how do you work out that balance? And then what can you do in your own backyard to attract, to plant native plants and bring in pollinators, bring back birds into the, you know, it's, it's going to have to be all of those things. We can't mm -hmm. just rely on the isolated protected areas anymore. We have to bring that into our communities and work mm -hmm within our communities to do whatever we can to help out too. Yeah. Great call, um, for involvement for, in your local communities. As we think about in between that, and I guess the regional perspective we were just talking about, are there any other kind of regional or statewide, um, processes or kind of visions that you see might be necessary? I know there are some more active regional planning entities in Maine than others. I don't know if you think they have a role or other nonprofits, uh, the state, in kind of helping us vision how we do this. Well, the Maine Climate Council, for those who aren't familiar with that yet, is a 
a group of folks that Governor Mills has pulled together to be thinking about these big ticket questions. And one of the working groups is the Natural and Working Lands Group. Part of their charge is specifically to look at how can we reach this 30 by 30 goal. And um, Maine Audubon has a representative on that group, as do many other conservation organizations, but not just conservation organizations, other, other folks who are interested in this issue as well. And so I think um, that's one avenue for trying to figure out how to tackle this issue. We have the Inland Fisheries and Wildlife has a program called Beginning with Habitat that we're very involved with as well. And if you're not familiar with that, Beginning with Habitat provides information and maps to communities for how they can think about uh, conserving important natural resources, whether that, that be their local waters, waterways, streams, ponds, etc., or farmland or forest land, uh, wetlands, and how they can do that at the same time that they're directing growth to the places that it belongs next to other development and away from important natural resources. So anyway, the that's beginning with Habitat program. We also have a, a steering committee that involves multiple folks from multiple conservation organizations and state and federal agencies, and we'll be tackling this issue as well. I serve on that steering committee, co-chair that, along with uh, somebody from the Maine Coast Heritage Trust. And just we just hired a new coordinator. Um, nice. I don't know that it's public yet, so I'm not going to name. <laughs> but but we're we're really excited to be working together in that group to sort of bring some ideas forward to the the 30 by 30 group at the Natural and Working Lands. Yeah, great to know about more collaboration with Beginning with Habitat. And um, hopefully our listeners at this point are pretty familiar with the Climate Council process happening through early 2024. Um, So I guess, yeah, on the other piece of the intersectionality, I mean, we're trying to cover a lot in this series, but um, your work in particular, maybe we can pivot to renewable energy siting in particular, um, a challenge for sure. But I don't know, help us think through what has your work looked like in that area? And um, yeah, specifically, I guess it would probably relate to solar and onshore wind for the most part for you. But And offshore wind. And offshore. <laughs> and transmission lines. Yeah. So so yes, we've we've been involved in this issue for decades now. And, uh, you know, started to get heavily involved when wind, when terrestrial wind power first sort of ramped up in the state. And it was a bit of a rocky road because all of a sudden we had people who wanted to put towers on the top of very remote, high elevation mountains in western Maine. And we had to really take a look at, okay, we need renewable energy. We have to transition away from our fossil fuel energy system and we need renewable energy, but that doesn't necessarily mean it can go anywhere. So that's been our approach. Maine Audubon is where we really try to pay attention to how can we both encourage more renewable energy, but do it in a way that minimizes impact to the other values that we have and that we care about. So, you know, how can we do that so that minimizes impact to wildlife and habitat? So over the years, we have put together a number of tools that are available for for developers, 
for um, policymakers and for local communities to think through these issues. And we've really, we have, so we have interactive maps that are out there that uh, renewable energy siting tool, you can actually go, you can find all these resources on our website. And you can go to a map of the state and look at where are some of the high value natural resources, where are the existing um, transmission lines, how and, and where are potential conflicts with either solar or wind projects, and where are there fewer conflicts, right. and we're trying to steer people to those fewer conflicts, and we're, we're trying to, and we've worked quite a bit with solar developers and wind developers proactively on taking a look at these issues before they get too far down the permitting process so that we can try to influence, uh, come to a win-win solution, and we have uh, we have a model ordinance out there for solar siting that towns can tap into. We have a best practices publication around what what you can be what you should be thinking about when you're not just only building the facility, but then how you're operating and managing it. Mm. And we most recently also came out with a, a publication around how you can add plantings of native species, native plants that are going to be beneficial for pollinators and other wildlife along with the solar project. So we've, um, we've done a lot of work in this arena and we like to think about citing all of these resources in places where it, as I said, it minimizes impact to other important resources. So, you know, don't take the best farmland. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> go go to the places that have maybe one of the things that's being looked at right now is where are the places where PFAS have contaminated the land so much that they can't use it anymore for growing. Are those good sites for for um, solar? I love seeing all the panels that are going up in the cloverleafs right. along the interstate. That's a perfect place yeah. for them. I'd love to see more buildings have solar on their rooftops you know it just should be a common practice it's uh, there's there's challenges with are we talking about industrial scale or personal scale but really we need both you know we need both but then one of the trickier issues i think has to do with the transmission lines because even if we as we build more wind projects as we build more solar projects that all has to be hooked into the grid system. And the grid system, the, the, the New England grid system is complicated. And we are going to need more transmission lines to get all that energy into the grid system. Where do you site those? How do you minimize impacts from those? That's a whole other issue. Yeah. And, and they, those lines have a tendency to fragment habitat which is not great for wildlife, particularly in light of climate change, because these both plants and animals are going to need to move across the landscape. We want to make sure we keep undeveloped lands connected in a way that allows species to move over time. And um, so these transmission lines pose a big challenge. The final area we're working on is offshore wind. So this is a new area that the state is really hoping to dive into in a big way and 
there's great potential for floating offshore wind turbines off the coast of Maine. We've been working really hard with a whole group of other folks on reminding everybody who's involved in this to not forget the the wildlife when they're when they're looking at where should we place these things can we do some research up front on where are the major flyways offshore the where are the where are the birds migrating where are the whales migrating what how how might this influence both the underwater life and the above water life that's found in our marine systems how's it going to affect our nesting seabirds there's a lot of unanswered questions there and but there's also tremendous opportunity. So we're pretty excited about that. Yeah. Wow. It sounds like you all have a ton of great resources on this. Really glad you've been looking at it. And you just bring up uh, what a critical question it is as we move forward. We need renewable energy um, and balancing those impacts will be a real challenge. Um, these projects are not kind of classic fossil fuel projects that were easier to just oppose all around in the past. Um, so it makes our jobs harder. It does. It does. <laughs> there are every, all, I would say all of our sort of conservation challenges today are, they just keep getting more and more complicated. Um, so you mentioned the resources. So I, I definitely want to guide people to your website to check some of those out. But can you talk a little bit more about uh, how those could be utilized to make projects in the right places? Are there more kind of incentives needed for developers? Um, I don't, I mean, I know we're not going to get into all the nuances of the energy system today, but are there other things that need to happen broadly to make sure those projects are cited correctly? Yes. So one of the things that we have been working on is not only sort of pulling together the best ideas around this, but making sure that the Public Utilities Commission, which oversees, ultimately oversees these, uh, the sort of financing of these projects and approval of these projects, that in their, what is called their next procurement, which is basically, they say, okay, we got, wait, we're open for X number of new projects coming into the state, and here's how you need to apply for those. And they're trying to build in some more incentives and disincentives to steer these projects in the right direction. So that hasn't really been um, the first round of the, once the state sort of opened up for solar energy projects, the first round of projects were not really, um, they just sort of went anywhere, <laughs> wherever they could, wherever they could find. And we're hoping that we can in the future, use the system to provide better incentives and disincentives to steer them to better sighted places. Thanks for tuning in for this week's episode of Redefining Conservation, a podcast from Sierra Club, Maine. You can find every episode and a link to our comment form at tinyurl.com slash scmpodcast. If you liked this week's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe to our podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. This podcast is written, edited, and produced by the staff and volunteers of our chapter, including Nyalat Bilil, Matthew Cannon, Nazreen Sheikh Yusuf, Anna Siegel, Philip Matthew, Grace Dang, 
Minot Weld, and our theme music was composed by Nathan Chromes Davis. Head to sierraclub.org Maine to learn more about how you can get involved with environmental activism in your community. Thank you for listening.